Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's great to see you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that is true, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Father's Day. It's a joy to be with you. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, I want you to know that we're thankful that you're here. Maybe you're out of town visiting family, just driving through. Who knows? We're glad you're here. This day is appointed by the Lord, and we are here together. So praise God for that. We have been working our way through uh, a series through the letter of Hebrews, and we're taking a pause from Hebrews during the summer, and we're looking at uh, encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. And Reuben Moyana, one of our elders, did just a wonderful job of kicking off that series last week by looking at that beautiful passage from Mark. So praise God if you missed that. I want you to go back on the um, internet, which is this thing where a bunch of stuff is, and you can find messages and and listen to or watch Reuben's message. It was a wonderful start. And this morning, we're going to look at a well-loved, very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 11. Now, I'm going to say unashamedly uh, that we are parachuting down into Matthew 11. I'm not going to do much background of context behind what's going on in Matthew 11. We're just going to zero in on three verses. And I want to zero in, especially on a couple phrases in verses 28 and 29. Admittedly, I'm leaving a lot out that we could dig into, but we're just going to zoom in on these two phrases and, and how they apply to following Jesus. And then, praise God, after I work through this passage with you, we're going to see a husband and wife that are new members of Crosspoint uh, serving our, our army here that have just come to our church in the last year or so be baptized together, and it's going to be a wonderful celebration of the gospel. Um, I want to set us up with this thought. There's this amazing, speaking of following Jesus, um, I, you just kind of read through the gospels quickly, and sometimes things just jump out at you. There's this amazing scene in Mark chapter 10. We're in Matthew 11 right now, but just... Mark chapter 10, there's this scene where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and James and John, two brothers, they're called the sons of thunder. What a nickname. And they come to Jesus, and they have the, listen to this, they have the audacity to say to Jesus, look, Jesus, uh, we want you, imagine coming to Jesus with this, we want you to do whatever we want you, we, we ask of you. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? And Jesus is kind of like, well, you can almost read like, well, well okay, boys, <laughs> what, is it, what is it exactly that you want? And James and John, these two brothers say, well, you know, when the kingdom comes, we want to sit at your right hand. We want the exalted places. You know, I want to be the vice president and the secretary. I wanna, I wanna, we want power. And Jesus goes on at the end of Mark chapter 10 to say, boys, in a sweet, kind, gracious way, you have no idea what you're asking for. And, it, and when I want you to have that thought in the back of your mind as a kind of backdrop to the point that I want us to see in Matthew 11 is that there is a way that is, it's very easy to slip into this mode, especially as Americans, because we, 
We are people that like things that work. We are a culture that thrives on pragmatism. And I'm not dogging that completely. In some sense, God has used that for great good, for great common grace in the world. I mean, thank God that there's ingenuity and entrepreneurship and people that demand a kind of excellence in how things work and getting things done. That is wonderful. But when we translate that to the Lord, when we bring that sort of expectation to our relationship with our Creator, we can be in danger of completely missing the point of our existence. We were meant not to have a kind of transactional relationship with the Lord where we acknowledge the right set of doctrinal facts and then he meets us there and then he works out our life so that it's better or more pragmatic or more helpful here for these 80 or 90 years. No, we were meant to know the Lord, to dwell with him, to, as the, as the Westminster Catechism says, to enjoy him forever. And part of that, yes, is the benefits of, of a helpful life that has, is full of wisdom and pragmatism and helpful things to live in a particular way. But friends, let's not miss the point that we were meant to commune, to be with the Lord. The, the Bible starts with communion in the garden and it ends in Revelation after the restoration of all things where God says through John, I will be their God and they will be my people and they will dwell with me forever. So we are meant, we are meant, and this whole idea of following Jesus is, is to kind of hit the pause button on these wonderfully doctrinally rich messages through Hebrews. I can't wait to get into Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. It's just rich with the priesthood of Jesus and all that implies for us. But let's pause for a while this summer as Reuben kicked us off last, last week with following Jesus and denying ourselves and picking up our cross. Let's look today at meeting Christ and his call and what it means to, to know him and to follow him. So with that, let me read Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. And then I'll pray quickly and we'll get into it. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, as I mentioned, there's much in this text that we can consider. Undoubtedly, it's one of the most well-loved, most well-known passages in Matthew, maybe all of the Gospels, even the whole Bible. But for our purposes today, I'm going to focus our consideration to two phrases in verse 28 and 29. The first phrase, come to me. What does that mean? What does that imply? And the second phrase, take my yoke. What does that mean? And what does that imply? What is Jesus saying there? Well, let me pray briefly again. Lord, help us. Um, help us not be distracted, Lord. Whatever may be going on around us that's maybe catching our attention, zero us in. What a privilege to meet together as your people. This room is full of Christians, and some, I imagine, are not yet believers. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Jesus in this passage, to meet you face to face? Would you encourage the faint-hearted, admonish the idle, 
help the weak, and be patient with us all. I pray that you'd help me serve these people. In Jesus' name, amen. The first phrase, verse 28, Jesus says, come, come to me, come to me. Who is it that Jesus is inviting to come here? Now, there's a context, certainly, of Matthew chapter 11, but I don't think that this phrase is so much dependent on the context of Matthew chapter 11. He is, in one sense, um, he is upbraiding some religious leaders. He's speaking, I think, generally to the crowd. But I think a transition has happened here at the end of Matthew chapter 11, and Jesus is speaking more broadly and generally to all who have ears to hear. And he says, come to me. Who is it that Jesus is speaking to when he says, come to me? If we surveyed the Gospels, we would see a, a theme developing that it's, it's not the righteous people, or at least the people that perceive themselves to be righteous. It's not those who, as Jesus says, have no need of a physician, but it's the sick and the sore. It's the weak and the wounded. This is who Jesus is calling, and he qualifies who he's calling. He says, come to me. Who is to come to him? He says it in verse 28, all who labor and are heavy laden. So Jesus puts some prerequisites on those who are able to come to him, those that he invites to come to them, and he describes them as people who are laboring and are heavy laden. So what does it mean to labor and to be heavy laden? Well, in context, Jesus has been speaking about the law and the burden of the law. And I think that the burden of the law, the heavy ladenness of the law, works itself out in our hearts across time, across all peoples, in one of two ways. In one sense, the burden of the law comes when we try and obey. We try and make ourselves righteous. We try and earn our justification by our own self-righteousness. And we think, and this is our natural tendency, we think that we can cover for our need, for our sin, by our own effort. We see, we see seeds of this all the way in the garden when Adam and Eve, or when they rebel against God and they try and cover themselves with fig leaves, they try and cover their sin with their own efforts, and it just doesn't work. And mankind, since that time, has been trying to cover himself. And even God, in the Old Testament, gives his good law, and we use that law not some, to point us to Jesus, but we use it as a kind of self-righteous fig leaf to cover ourselves and to make ourselves feel better. So there's a kind of burden that comes when we misunderstand God's command and we turn it into self-righteousness that puffs us up and makes us feel better than the other people around us. But that never satisfies because it just never quite gets there. We never, we ne there's always somebody else that we will be jealous of or that we will compare ourselves to. And it's a, it's a burden. It's a heavy laden. We always have this, 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 this insecurity that eats at our soul. That's what self-righteousness does. But the law, the burden, the heavy ladenness doesn't only come that way. It comes when people just know. They know. They are convicted of their sin. They know. In fact, their efforts for self-righteousness are really quite nil. There's nothing there. And they just feel a constant conviction because they know. And if you're in this place, I want you to know, if you're in this place right now this morning, this is actually, I'm glad you're here. There's, strangely, if you're here, this can be a really good, this can be the starting place of the Christian life. People that just know that they are captive to sin and that they are racked with guilt and conviction 
and, and they may sort of put on a kind of veneer of righteousness and Christianity, but deep down inside, they are being beat up by their own desires, their own impulses. They're being beat up by their own rebellion, and they are, as a result, heavy laden and burdened. So do you see who Jesus, I think, is talking to here? He's talking to the self-righteous who actually maybe have a kind of proud religious heart, which is a kind of burden that's unbearable for us, and also the people that are beat up and racked with guilt. Seemingly, people on two opposite ends of the spectrum that both equally need Jesus. And Jesus says to those type of people, come, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. And notice that Jesus doesn't make a distinction as to the origin or the reason of your heavy ladenness. He just says, come, come. The only thing, this beautiful old song, the only fitness that he requires is to Feel your need of him. And Jesus is calling his audience and he's calling us to finally get to the end of ourselves and see that he invites us not because there's anything commendable in us, but because we have nothing to give. And he says, come. Jesus delights in inviting people who are at the end of themselves. In fact, these are the only type of people that Jesus invites. He invites sinners and tax collectors and people far from God. In fact, early on in this chapter, Matthew 11, I think it's verse 19, it says somewhere, and I'm trying to read this without my glasses here. It's all blurry. Some of it's red, some of it's black. There it is. Verse 19, Jesus is quoting them, and he says, he says, look, you're, you're saying... The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, so he's kind of quoting what the culture is saying about him, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And we may think, well, why, I mean, we may think, gosh, I don't really like taxes, but why is it such a big deal that Jesus mentions tax collectors here? Well, that would have been a Jew who'd kind of sold out his own people working for the Roman Empire to collect taxes. In fact, Matthew himself, the author of this gospel, is a tax collector. So it was it was not only it wasn't only like patriotic treason, it was spiritual treason to work for these pagan people who were subjugating the covenant people of God, the worst of the worst, and Jesus is hanging around sinners and tax collectors. These are the type of people Jesus calls. And the gospel is full of Jesus encountering these type of people. The, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Jesus comes to her. The woman at the well who had had five husbands, not including the one that she was living with at the time when she encounters Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. The blind beggar Bartimaeus, who is a sinner, who cries out in Mark chapter 10, God, have mercy on my soul, a sinner. These are the type of people that Jesus delights in calling. The Gospels are full of people who don't come to Jesus with things to commend them, but come to Jesus at the end of themselves. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. So here's just the first, first question. is: Do you feel that burden? Do you feel that need? Do you... Do you do you see yourself having no hope other than 
Jesus? If so, you're in a good place. Jesus is inviting you as well. And who are they to come to? They're to come to Jesus, the one who is a friend of sinners, the one who we've been reading about in in Hebrews chapter 2, who is a merciful and faithful high priest. Listen to this. I can't get away from Hebrews. You know, I'm kind of in a Hebrews sort of state of mind right now. Let's just go rehash a little something in Hebrews chapter 2. This, this, I can't get over this verse, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, it, it's just captivated my attention since we have looked at it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Let me just read verses 10 and 11. This is the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus. For it was fitting that he, just think about this friend of sinners, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, so this I think talking about the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, meaning us, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So there's a lot going on in verse 10. We have the inner workings of the Trinity. There's the Father who has a plan to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And the way that he does it is through making the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect. Not that Jesus was imperfect and had to become something, but that God the Son had to actually become a man and endure the suffering that would be the means of atonement. So Jesus had to actually experience that in order for the plan of redemption to happen. And then look at verse 11. Verse 11, come on. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, meaning Jesus came from the Father. He is us. He's a man. He's like us. We're all connected. He's in us. We're in him. Listen to the second part of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He, he, this picture I have in my mind is that Jesus comes down from the, the throne room of heaven, down from the choir loft of heaven where the angels are singing to him, and he gets in the midst of the messy congregation, and he puts his arm around sinners, people that have nothing to commend them to heaven, and he says, these are my brothers and sisters, and he sings back to God with us. He's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. He identifies with us, and he reconciles with us, and I want you to see this. I want to have this picture of Jesus and his beauty and his grace and his mercy and his initiative is coming for us, blazoned in our hearts to be the backdrop against which all spiritual and doctrinal learning happens in our lives. Jesus loves us like this, and he comes to sinners like this, and it's just that simple, friends. I hesitate to share this illustration, but I think there's some merit in it because it's a COVID um, illustration. You guys remember COVID? Remember how hard that was? <laughs> oh my gosh. Opinions about everything. And remember early on, um, please don't email me. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of done with it. I'm just, I get, I get it. I, there's still some issues, but let, just, I, I just, I bring this up because I think it'll resonate with us. Remember the anxiety that we kind of collectively had as a nation early on when maybe somebody that you loved or you got COVID and, and there was all these things that would float around on the internet or even briefings from government officials like, well, take this combination of drugs and do this and, you know, uh, just eat 
avocados and, you know, <laughs> uh, what, I mean, just what? It, it was just confusing. And, and there was this, I think, for some of us, a kind of collective confusion and insecurity about what to do if we had the virus or for somebody that we loved or whatever. But he, here's, the, here's the thing, is that that's an example of just opinions about we got a problem and nobody really knows what to do. Well, one thing I love about the Bible, there's some difficult things to understand in it, no doubt about it. There's some hard and deep doctrines to grapple with. But there is a simplicity to the gospel. There is no doubt as to how you are reconciled to God. Sin is the problem and Jesus is the answer. It's clear. He is the only one. His life, His righteousness, His incarnation, His obedience, His death on the cross, friends. This is the gospel. Jesus comes. He absorbs the wrath that should have been ours. And no matter where we are in life, no matter where we come from, no matter what culture, no matter what upbringing, if we will trust in Jesus, we can be reconciled. We don't have to... Think about these little things we got to do and hop three times on your left leg and pray this prayer or go to this type of church or whatever. Jesus is the answer. Sin is the problem. God's judgment is against us. And the only thing that will take it away is Jesus. And we see, if you see that, if you know that, if you feel that heavy ladenness, if you feel that helplessness, if you, if you sense the confusion of every horizontal remedy, and you've settled on the fact that Jesus comes down to put his arm around you and say, this is my brother in him, he is mine and I am his, then you are reconciled to him, friends. That's the most important thing about any person in this room. That's the most important decision you can make. And let's not be mature Christians who move beyond that because mature Christians who move beyond that aren't actually mature Christians. They're Christians who have forgotten the gospel. They have amnesia and their, their first love, as Revelation says, has grown cold in their hearts. But what, what do you do, though? You say, okay, Brad, I'm, I'm, I agree with you. All, all, I agree with what you're saying. I hope you do. I, th I, th I think I'm right, by the way. I just, I'd say... I, I, really, I, I'm not, I know I'm right, actually. But what if you say, um, I just don't feel like I can come. I have no strength. This is where the, this is where the good news gets great. You, you say, I have no strength. I'm so beat up. I wish this could be true for me. I'm beat up by my sin. I'm beat up by condemnation, and I've lost hope. I know that this is the way. I've, I've heard this right answer many, many times before, but there is this heavy ladenness that's so heavy that I feel like I'm in spiritual quicksand. And just for sort of social survival, I've kind of learned how to navigate through spiritual spaces like this. But if I'm really honest... Um, there is a kind of hopelessness in my soul that I, I can't even respond to this offer to come. I don't think I'm included in this offer to come. I think there are people like that in here. 
here's the good news. Here's the good news. And I, I, if you ask me to explain how this works, I, I really don't know. But I see it in the Bible. It's the way God works. Listen to me, please. God creates out of nothing. God creates out of nothing. He created the world and the whole, everything that is. He, he spoke it into existence. He didn't need startup material. You know, there's like, you know, you ladies, that, that you, I hear this, there's a phrase, there's a, there's a concept I don't quite understand. Like in the bread making world, you know how you have like a, a starting, Robert was just telling me about this this week. We were away and he was talk, talking to me about some, they have some little starter batch of dough and then, and then you can make other type of bread from that starter. I, I honestly don't get that concept at all. I mean, I don't have a starter batch of dough, but if I wanted to make some bread, couldn't I just get all the stuff to make a batch of dough? Anyway, whatever. Don't, don't explain it to me. I don't know. I don't know. Do you, do you guys, ladies, do you save like batches of dough? Do you put it in your... Kathy's saying yes. Okay, whatever. All right. God does not need a starter batch. He doesn't need a sample from the previous loaf. He creates something where there's nothing. And so why is that important? Why, how, does that, how does that relate to this, to your sense of helplessness, your sense of being outside of the call to come? Because if you're hearing this, and you're, there's a desire in you. You may say, gosh, I don't even want, but I want to want this. I at least want to want this. I think that is really good evidence that God is creating in you what he commands. He's enabling you to turn from yourself. And the call is not to fix yourself up or get to a certain point or to learn a certain amount of facts. It is to admit that the only thing he requires of you is to feel that helplessness, to feel that, that selflessness. I can't do it. And if you're there and you realize it, that's a great place to be. Turn from yourself. Turn to the Lord right now. Look at him and say, Lord, this is where I fit. This is how, this is what my heart, this is the state of my heart. Would you please create what you command? He does it. He does it. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And how does a dead person become an alive person, it says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive through Christ Jesus. He creates what he commands. He gives what he demands. Jesus' call is powerful. It quickens. It awakens. And so here's the mystery. I've seen it innumerable times in the ministry of this church and just being a Christian, just... I've seen it in my own heart. Something happens. Sometimes, sometimes it's a sorry sermon. Sometimes it's the middle of just some drudgery, whatever. You're just kind of plowing along. Somebody comes and they hear the word preached. And the Spirit of God mysteriously, beautifully, imperceptibly 
grabs a hold of a hopeless dead heart and just makes it start beating. That's what, that's what he does. And he meets people who have nothing to commend themselves. And friends, this is all he doesn't, this doesn't apply just to salvation, but this applies also to just a tired Christian who feels like they don't have any. The, all of these truths apply not only to somebody that needs Jesus for the first time, but somebody who's really tired and beat up and fatigued in their Christian life. Jesus just meets you there. He gives, he grants what he commands, he creates what he commands. So if you feel hopeless, you're in a good spot. And then secondly, we'll end on this much quicker. What are they to do when they come to him? It's our second phrase. So the first phrase was come to me. Second phrase is take my yoke. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So coming to him is just, it's really the first movement. And the second movement, we come to him. He enables us to come to him. He makes us alive. And then what's verse 29? Take my yoke. Now that may be a strange phrase to you. What does that word mean, yoke? Yoke. A yoke is a, it's not, it's not referring to the egg here. It's referring to a, a wooden frame. Think of like an old agricultural culture or maybe the old west or something or some place where there are crops before they had machines. Certainly that would have been the culture. A wooden frame or some sort of thing that was joined two oxen together and harnessed the power of these two beasts of burden that then the farmer or the, the, the person plowing the field would then have on reins to direct these oxen, these beasts of burden, how he wishes. And so what Jesus is, the, the picture here, the metaphor, the analogy is, is Jesus is saying, take my yoke, take my, take my lordship, put yourself in subjection to me and make me your master and let me lead you around and yoke yourself to me. And not only to me, but to my body, to others and learn from me. Notice what Jesus is saying here, it, it seems almost from a human perspective, counterintuitive. He's saying, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. And then he goes on to, this is a beautiful phrase. We could just preach a whole sermon just on this last, this, this part of this sentence. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And what does he say? This yoke, this, this instrument of submission as the metaphor for a beast of burden. What does it bring in the life of the Christian, he says at the end of verse 29, you'll find rest for your souls. You'll find rest. And here, here I believe, is the, the key to motivation for taking up this yoke, to, to bring ourselves to Jesus and to submit ourselves to his commandments, to his lordship, to his, his ways, his authority over our life. And Reuben did such a wonderful job in the second half of, of his message last week about talking about it's, it's, it's coming to him and, and obeying him, learning from him. And he says, here's the key, you will find rest for your souls. And then in verse 30, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, here I think is the key. And this is where I think spiritual warfare hits our hearts, is that we think, we buy into this notion that obeying the Lord 
bringing ourselves into submission to the Lord somehow means the giving up of joy. When in reality, putting ourselves under the yoke, learning from, obeying, following him as Lord, trusting him, giving ourselves over to him is actually the only pathway to rest, which I interpret as another biblical way of saying joy. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The, the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make me to know the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And here, here's where the spiritual battle happens, is that the, I think one of the, maybe the only way that we can really maintain the motivation for obeying the Lord in this way is to see and know that that obedience will produce rest, peace, joy in our lives. And that, I believe, is the secret to the Christian life. So how do I do this? We end on this. How do I come and how do I take? Well, there's no shortcut. And I hope this is the, the resounding theme as we look at these verses, these passages through this summer of, of following Jesus, is there's just no shortcut to spending time with the Lord. We are distracted people. I mean, even in this sermon, I'm, I imagine there's probably people who've been checking Instagram, seeing when Rory McElroy is going to tee off this afternoon, or a whole host of other things. We are a distracted people. We are a people that are, that are addicted to pragmatism. And the call from Jesus is to come to him and to take his yoke upon ourselves and to obey him and to experience rest. And there's no shortcut to that than spending time with Jesus. Spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, spending time with other believers who will encourage you. Friends, that's the pathway to rest for our souls. And let me pray. And then after I pray, we're going to see this wonderful couple and their testimonies of God's grace, which is so glorious. I see them baptized as an expression of their faith in Jesus. Lord, we come now and thank you for this passage, this text, this call. Lord, if, there, if there's any in this room that fit the description of being at the end of themselves, forlorn, discouraged, heavy laden, would you meet them there and would you create what you command? And if there are any here that are deceived and think that we can come to Jesus but not take up his yoke, that those two things must go together, that coming to Jesus is taking up his yoke. It's coming to Jesus not only as Savior, but Lord. Lord, would you convince us, would you convince our wandering hearts that in your presence is fullness of joy? It's better than anything this world can offer. It's better than any fleeting pleasure. It's better than any, anything that we can give ourselves to that will only bring pain. 
Lord, we want to follow you. We want to come and we want to take and we want to see and we want to savor. Lord, meet us in your word. And as we see our brother and sister baptized this morning, Lord, may we exalt in the glory of the saving grace of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.